Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The health of the most privileged is dependent on the health of the least privileged. Never has that been truer than it is today. How can America and other democracies rise to the challenge of recovering from the COVID pandemic without letting liberty slip away? We consider this and other questions in the next 30 minutes. COVID pandemic, America's wake-up call. Adrian Wooldridge. And if this crisis taught us anything, it taught us that government really matters and government can be the difference between living or dying. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? By most measures, the U.S. has done poorly in the fight against coronavirus. We have more than one-fifth of the world's known cases and nearly one-fifth of total deaths. Who's responsible is debatable, and Richard, you and I have and will debate this a lot. But we have to do a whole lot better next time there's a global health emergency. One solution, Jim, is to spend more time on how to make the government more efficient. Or how can we make government great again? We discussed the lessons of the pandemic with Adrian Wooldridge. He's the political editor and also a columnist at The Economist, your favorite magazine, Richard. He's the co-author of the new book, The Wake-Up Call, How the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weakness of the West and How to Fix It. Adrian joins us on the line from near Petersfield, England, in Jane Austen country, apparently. Welcome to our podcast called How Do We Fix It? Thank you for having me. So how does the U.S. compare with other countries in the fight against coronavirus? I think really quite badly. Um, badly, certainly in terms of expectations. One would expect the world's great superpower to be rather good at fighting things like, uh, you know, a, a pandemic. But also very badly, it's put in one of the worst performances we've seen in the world. The death rate um, in Britain is about 600 to 650 per million. In the United States, it's not that much behind that. In Germany, it's about 100 per million. So that shows that you're doing about six times worse than Germany, the biggest power in Europe. Um, and when you come to countries such as South Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, you're talking about a dozen uh, per million. So America is not doing well. It's not doing well compared with the best in Europe. It's also doing particularly badly compared with the 
with the best in the Far East. The number of people who've died from COVID in Seoul, the capital of South Korea, um, is about a couple of dozen at the most. In New York City, it's about 22,000. I mean, that is a very big and I think rather an embarrassing uh, difference. So I would say that um, America has a lot to be ashamed of. I'm not saying that it's alone in that. That's certainly also true of Great Britain, but certainly not something one would expect from the world's greatest power and from a country that's tended to be in the forefront of um, human progress for the last century or so. Talking about Great Britain and the US, you say the two countries that have set the mood music for the West for the past half century look divided and shambolic. Shambolic is one of my favorite words. It's certainly the kind of word that is part, one of the charms of reading The Economist is words like shambolic. What do you mean? Uh, how, how was the response uh, divided and shambolic? What you tended to see in countries that have been very successful at dealing with the COVID crisis is that countries have come together and they've acted collectively um, in a fairly good mood to deal with these problems. And you can see that in Japan or Germany. Uh, definitely, you can see it in New Zealand, where the prime minister has just been re-elected um, with a huge majority and a sense of you know, public acclamation. And what you've seen in the United States and also in Great Britain is a great deal of division. I think in, in the United States, it's it's been worse than anywhere else. You've had division between the Republican Party and the Democrats, um, with Trump in particular politicizing this, but not just Trump. But you've also had division between uh, the federal government, state governments, local governments. Adrian, aren't divisions inevitable in a democracy? I mean, you praise Singapore for performing well, but it's an authoritarian government, one that imposes severe restrictions on freedom of speech. Is that what you're talking about or is it more nuanced? I think it's more nuanced than that. I think, you know, democracy is about collective accountability uh, of the government to the people. Um, and that inevitably involves divisions. And sometimes, of course, these divisions are extremely healthy. But I think you can go too far with divisions when people are disagreeing, not just on strategy and tactics, but on the nature of reality. That's probably going too far. When people are endangering each other's lives by disagreement, that's probably going too far. It's definitely true that Singapore is an authoritarian country, even more true that China is an authoritarian country. And of course, that they they imposed enormously severe lockdowns against, uh, without taking into account the will of the people. But there have also been other countries which have managed to manage disagreements or not disagree to the same extent. I would put uh, New Zealand, it's a small country, but it's obviously a very vibrant democracy. And we've seen Adern re-elected with, uh, you know, with a big margin. But also Germany has not had the degree of disagreement, I think, that, that, that you've seen in the United States. I'm intrigued by the case of Japan, where they really didn't lock down the way we did. Schools stayed open, people went to work. And, but, and yet they've been quite effective at limiting what, what we now all know are called super spreader events. How did they do it in a very densely populated country where millions of people ride, you know, shoulder to shoulder on, on crowded transit systems every day? 
Well, I think it's 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 there's some cultural things that have kicked in here. It's a country that puts a great deal of premium on social distancing. You know, they bow, they don't shake hands, they tend to value etiquette a great deal. I think it's also a country that that has been a mask wearing country, and I think countries where mask wearing has has been the norm have managed to slow down the spread of this uh, pandemic uh, a lot. They were they experienced SARS, and I think countries that have experienced SARS have done uh, have done very well. But also, they seem to have an extremely decentralised but highly effective uh, healthcare system, which is particularly good at tracking and tracing um, people who've been infected and isolating them. You know, I wonder if one of the conclusions of this particular pandemic is that we may shift away from shaking hands or embracing or whatever it is that people do uh, and get more towards bowing and more towards wearing a mask as a as a default you're not arguing for big government are you i would say that the argument about government uh, over the last few decades uh, in the west has become unhelpfully polarized between people who want big government and people who want small government. Uh, and there's an absolute fixation with the size of government. Uh, and what we're saying is that we shouldn't be so focused on the, on, on the size of government. We should be focused on the wisdom, effectiveness, smartness of government. Now, that might strike you as a sort of banal thing to say, who doesn't want smart government? But it does get us around a sort of fixation on the size of government. It does focus on what we uh, on what we really need to have, which is sensible governments. And sensible government can mean bigger government. I think America will need to have a bigger public health care system um, as a result of this virus. But it also means more focused government. And I think America will also have to think very seriously about the amount of government activity that simply goes to giving money to the rich um, through tax loopholes, or which is just unnecessarily complicated, as we have, as you have with your with your incredibly <laughs> extraordinary uh, convoluted tax system. You talk in the book about the importance of having civil servants who are top-notch professionals, and you feel that our current system doesn't really reward that. How do we get better people into those positions? The relatively simple thing is that you have to pay them a proper rate of, uh, of, of reward. And what you tended to have, what you tend to have in your civil service, um, and, and we do in our civil service, is a, is a very um, compressed reward system. So I think people who just want an easy life and uh, don't want to work too hard um, can probably do quite well in the public sector. They probably get a better set of rewards at the bumping along at the very bottom of the public sector than they do going into the private sector. But people at the very top of the public sector, in terms of their ability and commitment, get very small rewards compared with what they would do in the, do in the private sector. So you need to have much more variance of, of pay. So we need more in income inequality in the public sector. Yes, definitely. I, I'm a massive advocate of, in, of income inequality in the public sector. But that's the easiest thing in a sense. The other thing I think you need to do is value people who work in the public sector more than you do. And there has been a culture of denigration of the public sector in the United States essentially since um, the Reagan administration. You know, what we have done is reached the limits of being paired, of the public sector being paired back. And if this crisis taught us anything, it taught us that government really matters and government can be the difference between living or dying. Are there governments elsewhere uh, outside of, of the United States and, and, and Great Britain and perhaps even other parts of the West that 
have something to teach us about technology and how that can be used to make government more efficient and deliver services better? Well, the great argument of, of, of this book is that from the year, if you go back to the year 1500, um, China was ahead of the West, and the West was a sort of bloodstained battlefield of bad government. And that what's happened since then is that the West has pulled ahead of the East for many reasons, you know, capitalism and the rest of it. But one of those reasons is they constantly reinvented and improved uh, government in line with new thinking and new technology. So when you get up to about 1960, you have a world in which the West is massively ahead of the East in terms of the quality of its government. And now I would say what the, the COVID crisis has revealed is that the East is probably better at government than the West, which is an extraordinary change. And the reason for that is they're better at managing things and they're better at employing technology to get to their collective ends. And I would say a, the classic obvious example of countries that have done this is Singapore, that they're very, very good at harnessing technology to serve the public, I suppose. They're using intelligent technology to manage their society in a more efficient way. And I think that if you look at the list of the world's intelligent cities, I think, as, as it would be called, almost all of them are now in the Far East. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. We're speaking with Adrian Wooldridge, the co-author of the new book, The Wake-Up Call, How the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weakness of the West and How to Fix It. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're back with Adrian Wooldridge, the political editor of The Economist and author of the new book, The Wake-Up Call. So a superficial reading of your argument might sound like you're just in favor of a more effective, more powerful government. It's essentially a left-wing argument, but it's really not. Where do you part company with the left on how to manage the role of government? Well, I mean, we come at this subject, both of us, from a sort of classical liberal tradition, which is that what really matters is the freedom of the individual and that governments, insofar as it can help the individual to reach their aims and to live a life of, 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 of freedom and productivity um, is important. But it should also always be the individual and their rights um, that is at the center of our considerations. Government is a means to an end, not an end in itself. But we do think that at certain times, um, such as a war 
or such as a pandemic, government has to take a more active role than it would do at other times. In other words, there's no fixed set of rules for the size and scope and reach of government. Those rules have to be adjusted by reality. And in this pandemic, I would say that I would accept a lockdown um, because I think that slows the, 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 the rate of the spread of the pandemic. I would accept um, a significant degree of government involvement in the economy, uh, uh, propping up failing companies and things like that, because that's you know how, how you prevent uh, an economic crash. Things that I would not accept uh, uh, at normal times. But also I'd say there's something sort of more to it than that. And that is that um, it's very important that Western liberal democratic systems can prove that they in their own terms can cope with a pandemic or a crisis. So I'd say the big difference between us and authoritarian regimes is although that we do have more government and more intrusive government during a crisis, that government is always ultimately democratically accountable. It doesn't worry me that the government has more tracking and tracing ability than it does uh, in normal times and it can watch what I'm doing. It doesn't worry me so long as there's always you know, a parliament that can stop them from doing that. I want to ask you more about that. Yeah. Because one answer to the pandemic, and you've alluded to this, is, is in a sense greater surveillance, certainly of our healthcare sure. records. Sure. But that's already happening with technology companies. Um, Absolutely. There are dangers here. Do we have the proper checks and balances to surveillance? Yeah. No, I, I, I'm extremely worried about the, 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 the degree of power to, to survey my life and influence my life that, that these technology companies have. Um, and I'm, in some senses, more worried about that than I am about the government having that, that, that power, because I think the technology companies are, have an incentive to be constantly nudging by my behaviour in certain directions, and the government doesn't quite have the... They may have the incentive, it doesn't quite have the competence at the moment to do that. So I'm yeah, they're, worried about they're, they're, they're not as good at it, right? <laughs> yeah, they're not as good at it, exactly. Let's talk about China, where the virus first emerged. They were slow to admit what was going on and respond to the virus. But then more recently, China has done better than most countries in the West. The death rate, I think, in China is they claim three, three per million. It's probably, let's say, 10 times that, 30 per million. But even if it's 30 per million, it's a lot smaller than it is in the United States. Their economy is now roaring back. Um, their level of economic activity is almost back to normal, whereas that in the United States and Britain is certainly not back to normal. So it is a victory for them. We're going to have to be much harder on ourselves, much harder on our tendency to be flabby, to give subsidies to crony crony companies and things like that. I think the West at its best can easily defeat China at its best. But what we're what we're in danger of is having the West at its worst against China at its best. And in that case, it's a much more easy, even fight. So you say the the, the government has become obese or or flabby. What yeah. are some ways to to cut the fat but also deliver better services or be more efficient? Um, what we need to do is to harness the power of technology. And what you have got in, in, in the United States now is um, I think the number of people uh, in American government 
who are over in IT sectors of the American government who are over 60 is five times as great as the number who are under 30. Um, so you need younger people and newer technology. This is a, uh, an area where short-term big investments in government um, is going to pay off in the long term. We need to modernize and update our, our government uh, spending. And one of the problems that you have in the United States is, I think, because you have um, an unbalanced system for playing, paying for Social Security, essentially entitlements, uh, because you have a system whereby you're you're taking out more than you're putting in. You're taking out more in entitlements than you're putting in in taxes. Um, you're having to borrow. And what the cost of borrowing does um, is to squeeze out spending from other sectors. If you raise your taxes a bit, if you change your entitlement system a bit so that people get retire a year later, a couple of years later, you could bring that back into balance and you could release these pots of money that are now being used to support the entitlement system. You talk throughout the book about the need for a more nimble uh, public service sector with, uh, you know, a, a more innovative employees and, and more flexibility in how people are paid. In a lot of cases, these um, these employees are covered are are protected by unions, and you know, the teachers' union being one that you you target as a problem. But people think unions just push for higher pay, but they also push hard to make it almost impossible to fire people or impossible to selectively give raises to the to the best performers. They're extremely powerful in our politics today. And, you know, you make it sound like we just need some common sense improvements and we'll be good. But I'm at a loss. How do we do that? (laughs) <laughs> That's a very, very, very big question. And one of the problems that you have um, is that the Republicans think, well, it's an impossible thing to do. So j- let's just privatize everything, you know, because that, that's the only way you can get around the government problem. And the Democrats are so tied to the public sector unions that they don't want to reform things. So it's very easy to be in that in, in that position. But I would counsel against despair. In Britain in 1979, it looked as though this country was completely run by trade unions and there was no way of getting around that. And Mrs. Thatcher solved that problem. You know, it was messy, but we did solve that problem. And then Tony Blair took that spirit of reducing the power of the trade unions in the public sector and succeeded, I think, in in introducing much more performance pay Um, and removing at the very least the veto that the trade unions used to have over reform. So it's not impossible to do it. It's very, very difficult. But I think the degree of power that the the American public sector unions have is actually unusual in in, in the modern world. I mean, the system that you have of making it virtually impossible to sack school teachers um, is quite extreme. And also in the police force, quite extreme, the, the power that they've got. We've been talking a lot about the weakness of the West uh, and the weakness of, of, of America, what are a few areas that that we're better at? We're, th- yeah, we're about uh, the uh, great question. I do not want to come across as somebody who thinks the West is appalling. You know, we want the West to be the future and we think the West is not doing as well as it should be. But one of the obvious areas of success of the West is innovation. So just as we saw the low side of the West in terms of the uh, the initial fight against coronavirus, um, it's almost certain that the, the the vaccine will come from America or from Britain, 
in terms of solving these big problems, and solving them is much, much more important than anything else, innovation. Uh, and innovation comes from having you know, freedom and having the ability to you know, reward the best and, uh, and to encourage creativity and all of those things. That's still a fundamental, a fundamental strength of the West. Adrian Wooldridge, co-author of The Wake Up Call. Thank you for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you very much for having me. Before we have another lively conversation, Jim, uh, let's go to our recommendation. Richard, you know, we've been having this beautiful fall weather in the Northeast, and you know, it's we're in the final days of it, probably. So I've been spending a lot of time out in the yard, tinkering around in my garden and working on various projects. And I love listening to podcasts while I do that. Sometimes even I burn out on politics. So my latest favorite is a podcast called 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Now... First, I want to get out of the way. My annoyance at everybody having to identify their race in a jokey, self-deprecating way. But nonetheless, these guys are hilarious. They're really smart. It's three friends. I think it sounds like they met in college. They live in different parts of the country. They're absolutely avid music fans, kind of music nerds. And they decided to do a podcast where they would go back and try to pick their favorite songs from each year they, uh, they've been alive. So they start in 1969, but they are really thoughtful and funny uh, you know, examiners of just what makes pop music work and why do we love it? What, what kind of role does it play in our lives? Great. And what's it called again? It's called 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. One more quick note about podcasts with music. Last week, Spotify launched a new creation platform that makes it much easier for podcasters to add full tracks of music to their shows. So expect many more music-based podcasts to be launched in the future. We have a link to an article about this on our podcast website, howdowefixit.me. Adrian Woldridge said, Jim, we need to spend more on government in the short term, um, updating it, uh, making it more efficient as a squishy libertarian. What do you think of that idea? Well, I think he's right. We need a government that's more competent. And what I thought was most productive in the analysis was what's wrong with our current system. He's not advocating just pouring more money into our current inefficient system. He wants to loosen up how we judge what fair pay is for civil servants. I, th I think that's very smart. If someone is a, a financial expert and they're working for the government, you know they could make millions in the private sector. That doesn't mean the government has to pay them millions, but it should probably pay them more than you know $150,000 a year. One stunning thing was what he said about um, people working on IT in the government. And this is what happens when you have a system that rewards just keeping your butt in the chair for decade after decade. That's how the civil service pay structure is set up. We need to break the power of the public sector unions that make it. They don't just control how people are paid so that weak performers are paid too much, but good performers aren't paid enough. 
but they also uh, they also make it really really difficult to uh, to prune the the ranks when necessary. And anyone who's run a business knows that even good people sometimes wind up in the wrong job. And it's better for the for the institution, but in the long run, it may be even better for them if they're bumped out the door and and you make room for somebody else. That's a very valid argument from the right that public service unions have too much power. And certainly we've seen that in the case of the police very recently and just how difficult it is to discipline Perfect example. bad cops. Perfect example. The argument from the left that has been very much exposed by the pandemic is something that I mentioned right at the top of the show, which is the health of the most privileged is dependent on the health of the least privileged. And we really do have to look at our healthcare system and how it delivers services, especially to those people who currently uh, aren't insured. Yeah. So, well, we did pass a law on this. What happened? (laughs) Well, the law has added to uh, 20 million people being covered who weren't covered before. It could certainly be a lot better, but I would argue improve that law as opposed to getting rid of it. It's it's going off into a a different subject of our conversations, but I do think that, that we need not merely to look at areas that are simply inefficient, but also when it comes to public health, we need to cover more people. And the book also makes this argument as well. Right, but so we're, there's only two things. There's the healthcare system. What do people What do people do when they're sick? And there's public health, which is how do we protect society from pandemics and and other broad health problems. I I, I would argue that they're very much close to the same thing, that if you have people who are, uh, find it too expensive to go to the doctor and have no uh, links to the healthcare system, then that's a real problem in a pandemic. Right. But I'm saying the term public healthcare doesn't mean paying for people to go to the doctor. It means having organizations like the CDC that are monitoring broad public health issues. It might include affordability, but it also means He talked about resilience. It means being prepared for future problems. I want to push back on one of Adrian's points, and that is he suggested that during a crisis like a pandemic, we should accept a temporary rollback of privacy. I would strongly guard against that. Do you remember after 9-11, you know, a, a, a... a bipartisan group of Republicans and Democrats passed the Patriot Act, and it we accepted some significant erosions of our rights. We've now seen those programs be uh, abused again and again. I worry that anytime you give the government more power over your private life, there's a ratchet effect. It can always ratchet it up. It's very hard to ratchet it down. I'm on the fence on this, but I do agree with him on the on the need to put in new, uh, whether they're regulations or rules, about surveillance capitalism. One final pushback for me, he said, I think maybe we should be 
more like the Japanese, um, bowing and, and socially distant and, and perhaps quieter as a people. No, I don't think so. I, the thing I love about living in America, and, and I lived overseas for 20 years, is just how boisterous so many people are. I like the chaos. I like the fact that people aren't always that polite or and are certainly not bowing and, and uh, overly respectful of others. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Thank you, Miranda, for making us sound better with your edits. Uh, This show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. More at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 